Chapter 3 of Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H.C. Adam. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Friend, Arlington, Virginia, USA. Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H.C. Adams. Chapter 3. Nature must have intended this island for a prison, remarked Miss Vander Hayden as she looked up at the inaccessible precipices by which St. Helena is environed. Nothing but a bird can make its way into the interior, except by the landing places and the narrow paths which lead up the mountainsides from them. True, asserted the captain, and there are only four landing places which it is possible for a boat to approach, and three of them are more or less dangerous. This one which we are now drawing near is the only one in the island which deserves the name of a landing place. And it would be difficult for an enemy to assail that, remarked Rivers, as he glanced at the fortified lines, bristling with cannon, which commanded the quay. It would take a great many ships of the line to silence those batteries. Even then, from the tops of those cliffs, any force that attempted a landing might be destroyed without the possibility of retaliation. Yes, I agree with you, Miss Vander Hayden. Napoleon's heart, if he ever really contemplated an escape from his captivity, must have died within him when he came within sight of these precipices. You are right, sir, said Captain Rankin. That was his real ground of complaint against St. Helena. He talked of the unhealthiness of the climate, and the badness of his accommodation, and the rudeness of the officials in charge of him, but the true grievance was that escape was impossible. Aye, said Mr. Moritz, your countrymen made better jailers than those who had charge of him at Elba. Small blame to you, too. If he had been shut up in any place, which he could have got out of, he would have lived long enough to turn Europe upside down once more. Is the climate unhealthy? inquired Mr. Walters. Unhealthy? No, not a bit of it, replied the captain. I resided here once for two years, as one of the company's agents. I should say it was a particularly healthy country for Europeans. It is both mild and uniform in its temperature, never excessively hot, and never very cold. An English August and an English January would both of them astonish the natives of St. Helena. The trade wind gives a succession of steady and equitable breezes, and tropical storms are almost unknown. It is very bare and ungenial in its appearance, anyway, remarked Anchin. Ah, Miss Anchin, that comes of trusting to first appearances, said Captain Rankin. You will find it greatly improve on nearer acquaintance. But here we are, and here are our conveyances waiting for us. They landed accordingly, and after crossing the drawbridge, passed under the arched gateway and entered the principal street of the town. This was not very long, not containing more than fifty or sixty houses, but these were mostly of a handsome appearance, resembling English houses for the most part, two stories in height and whitewashed. The population seemed to be almost entirely Negro, but a bronzed old soldier, who told them that he had in his youth kept guard at Napoleon's grave, offered himself as their guide, and his services were accepted. Under his guidance they began their ascent, which had been constructed with enormous labor along the side of the almost perpendicular precipices, and which tried the nerves of some of the party, who were not accustomed to climbing. For a long way the ascent exhibited nothing but the spectacle of naked and barren rocks, but after the first two miles were passed, the eyes of the travelers were relieved by the sudden sight of wooded heights, diversified by picturesque villas and cultivated gardens. Trees, which were quite new to some of the party, grew on either side of the pathway. The Indian banyan and bamboo, the mimosa, the aloe, and the prickly pear of southern Africa were to be found side by side with Australian gum trees and the mulberries of southern Europe. 
There appeared also to be a variety of tropical fruits, figs, limes, mangoes, guavas, citrons, bananas, and pomegranates grew and throve, apparently, in the gardens which they passed. The temperature altered sensibly as they approached Longwood, which indeed is nearly 1,800 feet above the level of the sea. This seems a comfortable house enough, remarked Reggie, as they entered the grounds. Not an imperial palace, to be sure, but that was hardly to be expected. He was comfortable enough, I expect, said Captain Rankin, as comfortable as he would have been anywhere. Indeed, he wouldn't go into the big house which the English ministry had built for him. No, it was the being shut up at all that he didn't like. You're right, sir, remarked the old sergeant with a smile. If they had taken the Palace of Versailles over for him, he wouldn't have liked it any better. Did you ever see him? inquired Rivers. No, sir. I didn't come to the island till just before his death. But my father-in-law, who died a few years ago, was a soldier under Sir Hudson Lowe's command, and he told me that he had often been set as one of the sentries round Longwood, and had seen Bonaparte again and again. It was a troublesome duty keeping guard on him. How so? asked Walters. Why, sir, they were obliged, one of them, that is, was obliged to see Boney with his own eyes once in every twenty-four hours. To make sure of him, you see, sir, there was always a fancy that he was trying to escape to America. There was some ground for that, if what I have read is true, remarked Rivers. Maybe, sir, said Sergeant Thorpe. Anyhow, Sir Hudson always acted as though he believed it, and he insisted that one of his men should see Boney every day, and make sure he was there and nothing that he did made Boney so angry. He would take every means of preventing it that he could. He would shut himself up sometimes for a whole day, and allow no one to enter his room but his own servants. They were all in the same mind as himself about it, and even if they hadn't been, they durst for the life of them let anyone go into the room where he was. Some of our chaps hung about the entrance for an hour or two, or longer than that, before they could get a sight of him. My father-in-law told me that one day, when he had waited for ever so long without being able to see Bonaparte, he hid himself behind one of the curtains in the hall and stayed there till bedtime. About ten o'clock, Boney came out on his way to bed. My father-in-law got a clear sight of him, but Boney caught a glimpse of the end of his shoe sticking out from under the curtain. My father-in-law was hauled out and had to explain what brought him there. A complaint was sent to Sir Hudson and to the government, I believe, too that an attempt had been made to assassinate him. Well, there were so many stories of the same kind, none of which had any foundation, that very little attention was paid to it. No, said Captain Rankin. The government would have had little else to do if they had attended to all his complaints. So this is the house where the great emperor lived, is it? Lived and died, sir, said Sergeant Thorpe. This is the room where he used to sit and dictate, and this is the bedroom where he died. There was a terrible storm on the day of his death, the 4th of May, 1821. I can just remember it, having come here when I was a young boy, a few weeks before. People in the island say there has never been such a storm known before or since. All the trees about the place were torn up, and among them the willow, which under was his favorite seat. Were you present at his burial? inquired Margetts. No, sir. I was too young to be taken. I was left at home with my nurse and little sister, but almost everyone in the island was there. We will go down and look at it now, if you please. It lies in a small valley. The spot was a favorite resort of his, and there he had asked to be buried. The party accordingly quitted Longwood and followed the sergeant down to the spot he indicated. It was a lovely place, but very little attempt had been made to further beautify it. A mound of about 300 feet in circumference, overgrown with grass, had been surrounded with a simple palisade. About the middle of this was a tomb constructed of stone enclosed by an iron railing. 
There was neither inscription nor monument, the coffin having been deposited in a vault beneath and the roof cemented over. I have stood here sentinel many a day, gentlemen, said the sergeant, when I was a young man. There used to be a many visitors who came to see it, mostly old soldiers who fought under him. Do you remember the removal of the body to France, inquired Rivers. Yes, sir, I saw that myself, replied Thorpe. It was nearly twenty years after his burial, the son of the King of France, that then was, came to take the body to Europe. It was grand sight. I was one of the soldiers on duty that day. The earth was dug away until they came to the vault, which had been overlaid with cement. But this was found to be so odd that the workmen's tools broke one after another, and it was a long time before they could make the slightest impression upon it. At last they did make their way through it, and lifted up the large white stone and exposed the coffin. When the lid was taken off, there lay the great emperor, not the least changed, it appeared, by all the twenty years he had lain there. Features were not even shrunk, and there were the orders on his breast and the cocked hat by his side, scarcely tarnished. After the coffin had been removed, they replaced the stones as they were before. A good many people still visit this place, but not nearly so many, of course, as formerly. The party now took leave of Sergeant Thorpe and returned to Jamestown. Why didn't Whitaker make one of our party? asked Margetts to Walters, as they rode side by side down the precipitous path. I don't quite know, said Walters. For some reason or other, he is very unwilling to be absent from his cabin for any long time together. I have noticed that almost every hour he goes down to it. I suppose he has something valuable there, which he thinks is necessary to keep an eye upon. I don't know but what he's right, remarked Rivers. One or two of the crew strike me as being by no means the most desirable shipmates. That fellow Bostock and Van Rijk, the boatswain's mate, and one or two others, if they are honest fellows, don't look it. I spoke to the captain about it a day or two ago, and he agreed with what I said, but he told me that he and Wyndham kept a sharp lookout upon them, and when the ship reached Port Elizabeth, he meant to get rid of them. It is only a few of whom he has any suspicion. The rest are all right. The next day the voyage was resumed, and after rather more than a week's run, Cape Town was reached. Here there was a delay of several days. Vander Hayden went ashore with his sister to the house of a friend, with whom he resided during the whole of the ship's stay in harbor. He had been very angry with his friend and sister for joining the English party to Longwood, and would have broken off all acquaintance with Rivers and his friend if Moritz and Anchin would have allowed it. But though he succeeded so far to prevent anything like close intimacy, he could not prevent civilities from being offered and accepted. And Vander Hayden had seen too much of Captain Rankin to venture upon any repetition of the conduct which had brought about the collision between them a fortnight before. During the stay at Camp Town, an unfortunate incident occurred, which caused the captain much greater vexation than the misconduct of his Dutch passenger. Nearly a dozen of his best men, who had been allowed by the second mate, in the absence of his superior officers, to go on shore, were reported missing, and all inquiries after them proved vain. Either they had been bribed to serve on board some foreign ship, or to join some party to the interior. Captain Rankin was obliged to supply their place, as well as he could, with some men whom he had picked up at Cape Town, but whose appearance he by no means liked. We must keep a sharp lookout upon them, Wyndham, he said on the morning of the day after that on which they had resumed their voyage. If it wasn't that it would be impossible to navigate the ship without them, there's hardly one of these fellows with whom I would like to sail. I shall send them adrift at Port Elizabeth, along with Bostock and Van Rijk and Sherwin. I expect there will be no lack of good hands there. Well, it won't be very long, sir, said Wyndham. 
not above three or four days at the outside, and there are enough of us to put down any disturbance during that time. I'll speak to Mr. Rivers and Mr. Whittaker, and the others. They'd be very useful if any disturbance occurs. I will speak to Mr. Whittaker myself, said the captain. He told me something yesterday, an hour or two after we left the harbor, which, if he had mentioned before, I should have taken certain steps, which it would be too late to take now. I gave him my mind on the subject, though there was no great use in doing that. What, he has something valuable on board, I suppose, observed Wyndham. I have suspected as much for a long time. That was why he would not go ashore at St. Helena then. Yes, said the captain. I think under the circumstances it is quite as well you should know, Wyndham. He has got five thousand pounds in specie, which he is taking out to the bank at Meritsburg. Of course, he was bound to tell me, to give it into my custody, in fact, before we sailed. He declares he did not know that. That may be true, though it seems strange he should be ignorant of it. But, anyway, it is no use discussing that matter any further. No, sir. I suppose you have it in your charge now? Yes, of course. I have put it away in the strong cupboard, and will not deliver it up till we reach Durban. And what made Mr. Whittaker tell you about it this morning, more than many other day? asked Wyndham. That is one of the most unpleasant features in this matter, rejoined the captain. Mr. Whittaker has always kept his cabin locked throughout the voyage, and has never been absent from it for any considerable time. Until this morning he had no suspicion but what everything was perfectly safe. But last night, after the passengers had gone to bed, he fancied he'd heard a noise in the passage and caught a glimpse of someone hurrying away. This morning, on going into his cabin, he found Bostock there, and on his inquiring what business the man had in his cabin, Bostock muttered something about having gone in to clean it out. But it is not Bostock's business to clean the cabins. Mr. Whitaker was alarmed and came to me immediately afterwards. Indeed, sir, that looks ugly, certainly. You must get rid of Bostock when we reach Port Elizabeth. I have already said that I meant to do so. Indeed, I would have dismissed him at Cape Town if Mr. Whitaker had spoken to me in time. All that we can do now is to keep a bright lookout. Mr. Whitaker and I are alternately to keep watch in my cabin until we drop anchor in Algoa Bay. You had better keep an eye on Bostock, and it would be as well if you ask Mr. Rivers to help you in doing so. Mr. Rivers is, to my mind, as stout-hearted and cool-headed a fellow as any we have on board. I agree with you in that, sir, and will see Mr. Rivers at once. But I don't apprehend much mischief from John Bostock. The man seems to me as if he had lost his head. If Mr. Wyndham could have been present at the conversation which had taken place an hour or two before between Bostock, Van Ryke, Anderson, the captain's servant, and a sailor named Sherwin, he would hardly have expressed this opinion. John Bostock, little as Wyndham suspected it, was by birth a gentleman. He was the son of a Lincolnshire squire of ancient family, but very reduced means. His father was the last of a long series of spendthrifts who had gradually reduced a noble inheritance to a heap of encumbrances. Langley Cargill, or, as he now called himself, John Bostick, was one of his youngest sons. He followed in his father's footsteps and was soon hopelessly involved in debt. He tried to live by successful betting and gambling, but failed here also, and was reduced to extreme straits. When a boon companion, a man of some influence, obtained for him a commission in a Dutch regiment quartered at The Hague. Here he was safe from creditors and had an income upon which it would have been possible to live decently if strict economy had been observed. But to Cargill, economy had become impossible. He fell into his old courses and would probably have soon been expelled from the Dutch service if his ruin had not been precipitated by an outrage which drew on him the punishment of the law.
In the second year of his residence, he was attracted by the grace and beauty of a young girl who had just made her first appearance in public. Langley contrived to obtain an introduction, which he tried for several months to improve into an acquaintance. The lady's friends, who were aware of his character, interfered to prevent this. Her brother in particular, a haughty young officer, had forbidden all intercourse, and on the occasion of a public ball, when Cargill was more than usually importunate, had insisted on his leaving the room. Cargill replied by drawing his sword on Vander Hayden. The police interfered, and Cargill was insane enough to resist, wounding several men and one severely. He would have received a heavy sentence if he had not contrived to escape from prison and enlist as a sailor in a ship just leaving the harbor. After several voyages, he found himself in London and in the autumn of 1879 engaged himself under the name of Bostock as an A.B. on board the Zulu Queen, about to sail for Durban. Here he found Jans Van Rijk, Amos Sherwin, and Eric Anderson, old companions of his course to Botches. A day or two after leaving harbor, he also recognized Anchen van der Hayden and her brother, as the reader has heard in the previous chapter. Anchen had no suspicion that she had even seen him before, but her brother's memory was better, though with the scornful hauteur of his character, he paid no further heed to Bostock's presence. It will readily be believed that Bostock was not so indifferent to their former relations. He had devised a scheme by which he was to revenge himself on Vander Hayden during the ship's stay at Cape Town. He had resolved to follow him on shore, force him to a personal encounter, in which, being himself a first-rate swordsman, he expected to get the better of his antagonist and, in event of his wounding or killing him, make his escape to the Transvaal, which was at the time full of lawless characters. He had been baffled by Wyndham, who had refused him permission to leave the ship during the stay at Cape Town. Provoked to fury by this failure, he had resolved to enter Vander Hayden's cabin on the night of his return to the Zulu Queen, kill him or be killed, and, if he should prove the survivor, throw himself into the sea and swim ashore. His purpose was a second time defeated, in this instance by Mr. Whitaker, who occupied the next cabin to Vander Hayden, and who, as Bostock could see through the glass in his door, was awake and completely dressed. Surprised as well as disconcerted, he looked through the square of glass and saw Whitaker engaged in counting a number of packages, which he perceived to be rouleaus of gold. The strong iron-bound chest was evidently full of them, in which case he must have a very large sum of money with him. This discovery turned his thoughts into a different channel. He took an opportunity the next day of visiting Mr. Whitaker's cabin to make some examination of the chest, but was surprised by the saddened entrance of its owner. Mr. Whitaker threatened to complain to the captain, and Bostock had no doubt he had carried out his threat. He felt at once that if he was to execute his designs either on Vander Hayden or the chest of Specie, it must be done before the ship reached Algoa Bay. He had therefore invited his three mates in evil to a conference in the hold of the vessel. At this he imparted to them the discovery he had made, and the three worthies between them had hatched a plot, which was that very night to be put into execution. When Wyndham left Captain Rankin, he went immediately to George River's cabin, to whom he imparted the information received from the captain. George at once agreed to all that lay in his power, and promised to join the first mate on deck after he had taken a few hours' sleep. Wyndham, on his part, went to take his supper, which was brought him by Amos Sherwin, one of the quartermasters, his own servant, it appeared, being ill. The night came on suddenly, as is usual in those latitudes, and the moon was obscured by clouds. About ten o'clock, the first mate came on deck to take his watch. 
He complained of feeling drowsy and heavy, but was nevertheless quite able to take his work. A steady hand was placed at the wheel, and everything was quiet on deck. Walters and Margetts, who had not been disposed to turn in, were seated near the taffrail, smoking. Notwithstanding the darkness, the night was pleasant, and it was possible occasionally to discern the coastline, which was distant two or three miles, though very indistinctly. The first mate seated himself near them, leaning his head on his hand. A few minutes afterwards, someone came up with a message to the steersman, and the latter, surrendering the wheel to the newcomer, went below. The night wore on, and after a while the moon, forcing its way through the clouds, lit up the scene. The two young men now noticed that the ship appeared to be a good deal nearer to the coast than it had been all day. Walters called out to the first mate to point out the fact to him. He held him once or twice, but received no answer. I say, he exclaimed, Wyndham must be asleep. Oughtn't we wake him, Reggie? He can hardly be asleep, returned Margetts, a smart hand such as he is, but I'll go and speak to him. He stepped up to Mr. Wyndham's side, and, finding he still took no notice, shook him. But the mate did not bestir himself, and the two young men perceived that he was either seriously ill or intoxicated. I say, this is serious, said Reggie. We had better go down and bring the captain, hadn't we? Look here, if you'll take charge of him, I'll go to the skipper's cabin. He hurried to the companion accordingly, and on his way encountered George Rivers, who was coming up, according to promise, to join the first mate. He hastily informed him of what was going on up above, and George, a good deal startled, hastened to the place where Wyndham was still sitting, with Walters leaning over him. But while crossing the deck, he caught sight of an object which filled him with astonishment and alarm. This was the coastline, which was now clearly visible in the broad moonlight. What can you be about? he shouted to the man at the wheel. We are more than half a mile nearer the shore than we ought to be. If our course is not immediately changed, we shall run upon a reef, and by heaven, he added a moment afterwards, there is a reef just ahead of us. Starboard hard! Starboard, I say! Are you drunk or mad that you don't see where you are taking us? He continued as the man, paying no heed to his warnings, allowed the ship to drive on straight towards the reef. George rushed up and endeavored to wrest the helm from his grasp, but it was too late. The next moment a grinding noise was heard as the ship's keel grated over a sunken rock. Then came a tremendous crash, which shook her from stem to stern, and the Zulu queen was lodged hard and fast on the reef. George collared the steersman, but he was a powerful man and shook off his assailant's hold. Pulling his cap farther over his face, he ran down the hatchway, but not before Rivers had recognized Jans Van Rijk, a Dutch sailor against whom Wyndham had warned him as one of Bostock's intimate companions. It was no use following the man. Indeed, it would have been impossible to do so, for in another minute the hatchway was crowded with men who rushed up, half-dressed and in deadly terror, to know what had happened. Where is Mr. Wyndham? shouted the captain. How could he have allowed the ship to run on a rock after this fashion, in a light where everything is as clear as noonday? Mr. Wyndham is in a kind of fit, sir, said Margetts. He has been sitting there without moving for the last hour or two. You had better go to him yourself. The captain stepped across the deck and took a look at the first mate's face. Come here, McCarthy, he cried to the surgeon. He has been drugged, hasn't he? The surgeon put his hand on Wyndham's pulse and, bending down, inhaled his breath. Yes, sir. He has been drugged with opium. This has been a preconcerted thing. End of chapter 3. Recording by Mark Friend, Arlington, Virginia, USA.